Do you hear that last sentence? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are you, Chanctuary Church, that your eyes see what you see, God's glory manifest amongst his people. Can you amuse me for a moment? Let me tell you a quick story. Yeah. So um, most of you know, I've got two young daughters. Any girl dads around? Yeah? Power to you. You're my heroes. So my, our eldest is nearly four, Mary, and um, her birthday's coming up, the end of the month. And so she, for the first time, has really got to grips with this notion of her birthday list. And then, like, <laughs> a lot of people like, resonate with that sentiment. Um, but it's interesting, like, over the last year, we probably haven't gone about it the right way. With, uh, she's been three, kind of developing her personality, so we've been bribing her. Namely through cuddly toys, and we're like running out, like one box turned into a larger box, it turned into two boxes, now it's a cupboard. Um, but we notice that Mary, she always remembers where the toy came from. So she's like, oh, like, did, did Holly give me this one? Like, did, did Nana give me this one? Like, who gave me this one? We're like, that was Granny. Like, does anyone else have that with their kids? They remember who it came from. The only issue is, most of her toys because my wife ordered them like secondhand through Vinted, are delivered by the postman. So it's not a case of like, oh, did Granny give... She says, did the postman bring me this? <laughs> and it's trying to like, you're trying to, you know, kids, you're like, you're teaching them the ways of the world, how things work. And you're like, no, like the, the postman delivered it, but it wasn't from him. It's like they, they came from us. We're trying to like make her recognize that the one who delivers isn't always the one, like the source from that gift. Does that make sense? Can you see how I'm trying to like weave in this like family story? Like we have to remember not to conflate like the source with the vehicle. And I think so frequently now, like we're, we're swimming upstream against all the cultural waters that are telling us all these lies and essentially leading us into this idolatry, which is just misplaced hopes. It's trying to say, like, pin all your hopes upon these things, upon often all these good things, upon your family, your job, your status, even like on your physical health and, or maybe like your athletic endeavors. All these good things which are gifts from God, but they are not the same thing. They are means of his grace, but we're looking in the wrong place if we pin all our hopes to that. Because Jesus says there's always an invitation to a better story, one who is actually able to bear the weight of all our expectations, one who actually we can pin all our hopes to, and we won't be let down. Do we believe that? Jesus is the better story to live our lives to. I love, because I quote it probably every time I stand up here, about Augustine, he said, you know, our hearts are made for you, God, and they're restless until they find their home in you. And Jesus' invitation is just throughout the scriptures, come to me. In Matthew, he says, come to me, I will give you rest. In the midst of an age where inclusivity is kind of constantly thrown around. In Jesus, we find true inclusivity, where he says constantly, come to me. Wherever you're at, whoever you are, whatever you've done, come to me. 
I love you so much, I'll meet you wherever you're at. But the beauty of his true love that redefines our entire conception of love and grace is that come to me. I'll meet you wherever you're at, but I love you so much, I'm not going to leave you there. And he leads us higher as he takes us by the hand with that invitation of come, come follow me, walk in my ways. As we were praying in, on, on Wednesday through Isaiah 55, the thing of my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your thoughts, they're higher, they're better, to put it simply. And so the last couple of weeks, as we've been journeying through Luke, we talked about our heart priorities that we need, need to cultivate and, and nurture. Last week, Patrick and Philly kind of unpacked this radical discipleship that we're called to in which we're rooted in the knowledge of him. I think this morning, I haven't quite landed on a title for it, but it's something along the lines of this compassionate correction, which is true love. And it leads us to true life. Especially when you get a passage that the title is Woes. Because in Jesus, we're confronted with that, that crossroads of decision. It's ultimately always going to be a case of, are we going to trust and follow Jesus, walk in his ways, lay down our own desires, or are we going to reject and ignore him and continue to walk by our own ways? Because that's what we find, these, these Jewish towns, they would have self-identified as people of God. In Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They're aware Jesus took his disciples on like, their mission trips and escapades where we read of all these incredible miracles, these deeds of power. But he compares them to kind of Israel's foes of old, like Tyre and Sidon, ones that were described in the prophetic literature as being like evil and, and opposed to God's ways. And this is what he compares them to. But I suggest today, as we read it, and maybe it kind of makes us feel a bit uncomfortable because it's all about condemnation and damnation to these communities. What if we read these woes less as words of judgment and damnation, but more of an expression of Jesus' profound compassion and regret? Does that make sense? They're a sign of his love. It's compassion for these, these lost sheep that have gone astray that have been led astray, that have been lured and tempted away. His woes to these towns are, are laced with regret for what could have been. Regret that for what was lost and what never was. I think it's not too hard to, to make the case that humanity have this innate predis predisposition to take things for granted. I can prove it. Who, who lives in Ashington? Over the last eight and a half days, how much has your appreciation for the co-op increased exponentially <laughs> since it's closed? When it's always there, we take it for granted, right? And we have to fight against this. And again, I say this partly to be funny, but also to make a case. I wonder how many of you can relate to me. Maybe you were brought up in the same house when um, I'm the youngest of three, so I was like the sport brat baby. Couldn't eat peas as a child. Um, probably still don't really like peas. But when we'd sit at the dinner table, it was very much a case of my mum wouldn't prepare a different meal for me. She was like, no, Paddy, you need to appreciate what you've got. There are starving kids in Africa who would 
give a left arm to what you have. Has anyone else like, encountered that same sentiment? But my mom, she didn't, she didn't say it to guilt trip me, right? She was trying to provide me with perspective, tried to nurture within me gratitude for actually what I had. Jesus, he, he speaks towards these towns, these Jewish people, these, the people of God, who he set apart as his holy, precious people. You have experienced these deeds of power which should have led you to, to awe and wonder and worship, to recognize that I was the Messiah. Because his plea, when, he, when we read this today, the plea is still the same from Jesus. Of Gosh, just don't make the same mistake. Don't forget. I'm struck as you read through the scriptures just how often Israel are told, don't forget. Don't forget all that God has done to you. But what we find, actually, if we apply history on top of reading the scriptures, is that these cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they let their pride win. They took it for granted. They took for granted all that was in front of them in the person of Jesus, all that he, he came to bring in his message of good news. We were talking in the week, and, and Philly reminded me, she said, a couple of years ago, I went out to Israel. And you go on a tour, you see all the places that you read about in the Gospels. And she said, you know what, there are signs for Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. But when you go there, there's nothing there. History reveals that these places are, are no more than ruins now. And I don't think Jesus is smug about it either. His great compassion and regret still burns, I think. And so as we progress through the narrative, we find the, the 72, they, they return from their mission trip, where they've been sent out. You might think, actually, maybe their, their experience while they were out surpassed their expectation. I couldn't help, but my mind went back to, to an account. A few years ago, a previous bishop, he came to, to confirm a bunch of people in our church. And um, part of the, the Anglican rite of confirmation is he will like sprinkle baptismal water. It's going to remind people of the vows, remind people of their baptism. He was going through the motion, uh, he's more of like a Catholic tradition, but what struck us was his facial expression as God used that. He started sprinkling people, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them in great power, and they went all like herky-jerk, and like, <laughs> I don't need to expand it anymore, we know what we're talking about. And his face, it first of all got a bit perplexed, but he like was resolute, so he continued doing it. And then he figured out what was happening, and he, like, he saw the correlation between him sprinkling the baptism of water and the Holy Spirit coming in great power, and it turned into great joy. And it was this, like, him just walking around the church, spraying everyone. <laughs> and I mean no dishonor to that picture. He was wonderful. Because it's just that, that God, the maker of heaven and earth, he, he decides to use us not just bishops, by the way, like us, all of us. He chooses to use us. He gives us power and authority. He sends us out to, to heal the sick, proclaim the good news, raise the dead, deliver the oppressed. 
I think it's very easy for us to buy into that, to that notion, oh, you know what, actually, you know what, we are the hope of the world. And I, I, I don't mean like entirely to throw shade at them, but there's that famous quote from a prominent church in America that they wrote a big book. They said, the hope, the, the church is the hope of the world. And there's truth in it, but also there's a resounding, no, it's not. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. I love, Lindsay, your, your testimony, because it just speaks to that so clearly. Jesus is our hope. And pride is such a dangerous thing when it slips in, and then we, we somehow, to some degree or another, assume that we are the solution. Let's not conflate the, the composer, God Almighty, with his instruments, which are us. I'm not trying to say like we need to have such a lowly position of ourselves, but let's have a right position of ourselves, that we are instruments in an incredible God's hands. And so Jesus, in his, his correction of, his, of the 72, he kind of likens it to Satan's meteoric fall from grace. One who was an angel called to and created to lead all of heaven in worship suddenly let pride get the better of himself and he was no longer content to worship, but he rather wanted to be the object of worship. It's constantly that call. We, we speak about it so frequently of embracing and nurturing humility. Not that we think less of ourselves, but rather we often it's just a case of thinking of ourselves less. C.S. Lewis would describe humility as the center of all morality and pride at the center of all immorality. That's partly why if you look at like our, our five core values as a church, it's all glory to God. We want to point people to, to the true hope the true solution, the true answer to all our longings and questions. So Jesus, he, he uses this opportunity to rebuke and correct. But remember, we've been talking how actually Jesus rebukes the ones he loves. So what if correction is actually an, an overflow from his deep compassion and love for us? So yeah, he affirms the, the power and the authority that the 72 have gone out and walked in. He affirms the fact that like, you are the sent ones. And I think often we need to kind of embrace that afresh today. Verse 16 just reminds us how we are sent ones. It's not just for some of us, but it's for all of us. We are invited to spectacular things. We're given by God himself the authority to proclaim good news, proclaim a, a new kingdom coming, but also we're given the authority to authenticate it and display it. On a side note, some scholars will genuinely make a case for the fact the reason that Jesus rebuked them was because he didn't explicitly tell the 72 to cast out demons. I think, like, let's not get tripped up in things like that. And Jesus, he, he reorientates all their priorities. It's, like, it's not about all the power and the authority that you have now. He says, like, nevertheless, do not rejoice in that, but remember what is truly important. 
Because Jesus, he, he shifts their, their attention to the realities that will truly last. He says, no, don't, don't focus on all that like, I've given you to do, but focus on who you are and who I am. Focus on eternity, not the temporal. Focus on the fact that your names are written in heaven. Because all this newfound power that you have and have been given, that you've been exercising, that's brought you great joy, it's not the end goal. Don't get distracted by it. It's like all the, all the tears, all the laughter, all the, the dancing and clapping and singing, all the craziness that is confusing, to be blunt, to often many of us, that's not the end goal. <laughs> but in Jesus, we have this, we're constantly reminded of this profound invitation to, to come to him. That's the experience we have. In the person of Jesus, it is God himself revealed. We're not supposed to have favorite Bible verses, but often there's a handful you always come back to. The opening pericope of, of Hebrews, I love it. it kind of, he just highlights the truth of it. He says, like, in, in times gone by, God used to speak through prophets, but now he, is, he has come to us in his son. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And in the person of Jesus, the, the author of Hebrews says he's he the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of him. In Jesus, we find what one Christian thinker would say, Jesus is perfect theology. All of God revealed in humanity. He doesn't contradict anything revealed about God in the Old Testament, but he, he unveils it no longer is it a mystery revealed to a few. The only condition to kind of take hold of that mystery is like to be like a child, to recognize our helpless and desperate need and humbly come to him. Because that's the constant invitation we have from Jesus is, is come. You see just the, the same language being used from start to finish. We prayed through on Wednesday, going through Isaiah 55. James probably referenced some of it in Matthew 11. Come to me, I'll give you rest. It's in like the closing few words of, of Revelation 22, where the Holy Spirit beckons, come. It's come, drink, come, eat, true food. Come drink from living waters that will actually satisfy you. And amidst all the woes, maybe we see past that and see this deep compassion of Jesus that invites us to come and follow him, walk in his ways and experience all the goodness and all the glory, all the joy, all the healing, all that is beyond my ability to articulate and my grasp of the English language. God is constantly saying, come to me, revealed in his deep compassion for us. But I think as well as that, because... The Christian message that Jesus came to proclaim is it's not just morality. It's not just how to live your life. Of course, there is morality in it. And also, it's not just therapeutic to come and, and help us. But it's also about action and, and mission. It's about a kingdom progressing and advancing. So as much as I can say in Jesus, we find this incredible invitation to come to him wherever we're at. Also in Jesus, we find this charge from him. So this compassion, it comes and it, it does something within us when we interact with him. 
especially the last couple of months, we get kind of a lot of rhetoric is particularly towards like our end of the tradition, as an evangelical church, is that we need to speak the truth in love, right? Sometimes it's used to, to rubber stamp being a jerk. But we do, that's, a, that's like a charge of Jesus. Is that a more PC phrase? This is where like my American English culture, I'm somewhere stuck in the middle. <laughs> but Jesus charges us to join in with him. He charges us to do it compassionately as well. Does that make sense? It's modeled in Jesus. How do we... Well, first of all, we actually do need to speak the truth. We don't just need to let it like, keep going on and on and on. We need to speak the truth. We need to take hold of the message that's been given to us, that we've received, most namely through our holy scriptures. Actually getting stuck into it. We wouldn't think, oh, it's so mysterious. I don't know the answer to that question. I will... Often it's <clears throat> within these pages. But namely, we need to speak that truth in love. With the same compassion that Jesus has, not just woe to you because you have rejected Jesus and his message, but actually let that deep compassion, regret, drive you, be the motivator beyond it. Does that make sense? Church, we are called to... I love it, one... Apologists use the phrase like, oh, our charge is to re-narrate human existence. We are called to tell a better story because we have one. But we can't do it unless we actually engage with the person of Jesus and experience his deep compassion and his love that surpasses all our preconceptions of love. To quote Sandy Miller once upon a time, I think I'm done now, James. <laughs> but hey, why don't we stand? We're going to pray. And um, let me be the first to say very shortly, we're all going to depart from here, go in God's peace, and we're going to feast once again, physically, just as we have spiritually this morning. <laughs>